Let's take our Bibles and go to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 6. First Timothy six. We've been thinking about this issue of the sacred and the secular. Is there a divide between the stuff of earth and the call to deny ourselves and, and follow Christ? Do we need to shun and get rid of all the physical things in this world? Or should we in fact find satisfaction in all of these things? Or is there some sort of Middle ground, finding joy in all of God's good gifts um, to his glory. So this is kind of our third week. We're going to try to wrap this up. That doesn't mean I'm going to answer all the questions. If you remember when we started, the, the part of the point of this brief little series is just sort of to spark um, questions and conversations that we would think through these, these issues and, and try to come to some understanding of what God's word would say to us. As we've been asking these questions, the first thing we saw in, in um, 1 Timothy 4, 4 through 5, that uh, there were those that were saying that you should deny marriage and deny certain foods, that in doing so you were able to be holier. And Paul comes and says, no, everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, because it's, it's made holy, it's sanctified by the word of God and prayer. And so we received from Scripture this clear call to enjoyment. Um, and we saw in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, that that you can eat, you can drink, you can do anything to the glory of God. And so there's that call to enjoyment. Of course, there's a, there's a way to, to enjoy God's good gifts in a way that is not glorifying to him. And so last week we tried to think through some of the, the cautions and the tensions in Scripture. We hopped around a little bit. We saw first that there's the threat to sin and idolatry of, of exalting God's gifts above him as the giver of worshiping the created thing rather than the creator. So we want to be careful of that. We considered also the necessity of self-denial, that out of love for God and love for others, we can joyfully deny ourselves good gifts um, so that we can grow in our devotion to Christ, so that we can lead others to, to joy in Christ, keep them from sin, whether they be brothers and sisters in Christ or those who have yet to come to faith in Christ. So the threat of sin and idolatry, the necessity of of self-denial. We also talked about the reality of present suffering, that my suffering and the suffering of others influences the way I enjoy the good gifts that God has given. And so even as we prayed this morning, we can, we can enjoy good gifts, we can enjoy blessings, but, but we also know something like, like Maud is, is sick and Amy is suffering, and that tempers the way that we think about the joy that we have in different things. And so that's something that we realize. And then finally, we talked about the reality of the coming kingdom. We said that C.S. Lewis calls this world the shadow lands and that the gifts that we have are, are shadows. We can taste joy now, but there is eternal, unending joy, unending joy in the coming kingdom. And so we don't seek our, our ultimate joy in the things of this earth. But then we sort of concluded and said that that could sound terrible, but at the same time, we know that God is working to increase our joy in him always through his good works. That even in the cautions and the times where we're supposed to deny ourselves out of love for God um, and others to keep ourselves from idolatry or when we, we lack joy because of suffering or when we are longing for the age that is to come, when it's free from sin and all of these things, God is still working for our joy by withholding things from us or helping us to enjoy them in the right context. John 10.10, 10, right? Jesus has come that we would have life 
and have it to the full. That's, that's God's heart for us. John 16, 24, Jesus says, Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive. Why? That your joy may be full. That's, that's Jesus' heart for us. Elsewhere he says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. And, and like Jesus, that's, that's our role as church leaders, Joel and I and anyone else who, anyone else who is preaching God's word. 2 Corinthians 1.24 says that Paul and those that served the churches alongside him, he said they were workers for your joy. That's what Paul was. I'm working for your joy. God is not seeking to squash your joy, and neither am I. Uh, my goal in talking about cautions and intentions, talking about sin and idolatry, about self-denial, about suffering, is because I, I want us to know true joy, full joy in Christ by enjoying the things that he has given within the right parameters and within the right context that he has given us and doing it for his glory. So with, with that in mind, as we think about finding joy in God through his good gifts, one of the greatest enemies to joy is discontentment and the constant desire for more and more. We can be blessed with everything that we need. We can be blessed with more than we should even want probably, but we can still be filled with discontentment that would lead us into covetousness and greed and, and jealousy. Isn't it ironic that the one day on the calendar marked for giving thanks is followed by a day that can breed so much consumerism and discontentment? Black Friday, right? So Thanksgiving calls us to count our blessings, to realize how blessed we are, especially in the intangible things, the things that money can't buy. And Black Friday comes and tells us that we don't have enough of the things that money can buy and we need to get more of them. Now, before you think I'm a Scrooge or before you start feeling guilty because you were out at midnight, you know, getting some deal at Walmart, it's okay. Uh, before you write me off, I, I just want to say, I, I'm not saying that buying things is bad. That, that's life, right? We have to buy things. That's, that's the culture that we live in. Money, things, they, they're a part of life. And, you know, I love a good deal just as much as the, as much as the next person, right? It, it feels good to get a good deal sometimes. But I want us to ask, how can we take this, this call to enjoyment and the tensions of Scripture and apply them within a, a consumeristic culture, a culture that is always telling us to get more and more and, and more? How do we think about that? Because we live in this, this day that tells us that they, everyone knows what we need to be happy, and it's usually something that you can buy, right? <laughs> Headphones and, and cell phones and shoes and, and clothes, Cars and vacations and homes and, and furniture, five-star restaurants, front row seats, flat screen TVs. These are what are going to make us happy. And all of these things can be enjoyed to the glory of God. I enjoy them. But they can also rob God of his glory, can't they? The stuff of earth can bring joy in God, but can also drown our love for him. We can become so consumed with consumerism, we can become so stuffed with stuff that we're too fat and, and too weighed down by things to feel sort of the weight of God and the weight of his glory. So like last week, I, I can't give you a list of rules. I, I can't give you do's and, and, and don'ts because the Spirit leads us differently. Every life situation in here is different. The amount of money that you have in your bank account is different. Your economic means are different. 
even the things that you enjoy are different. These are all variable and they're different. But I can tell you this, that as Christians, we are called to contentment. That's what we're all called to, is to contentment in whatever circumstances we are in. This is what Paul calls Timothy and the church to in, in, in 1 Timothy 6. We're going to read a good chunk of this chapter. We read it last week as well. But let me briefly summarize it. It would, it would seem that there were some false teachers that were coming to the church. And remember, they were saying that you need to abstain from certain things um, to be truly holy. But at the same time, it seems that they were also using their position in the church as a means of financial gain. So, so they were using their, their role as leaders as a way of, of making money. So Paul extols the blessings of contentment, and he talks about the danger, not simply of riches in and of themselves, but rather of loving riches and of loving wealth. And he calls Timothy to a different path and offers some instructions to those who are rich in this world. So let's look at these verses. I want to start in verse 3 of First Timothy 6. It's actually a little phrase at the end of verse 2 that sort of marks out the paragraph. So First Timothy 6, beginning at the last part of verse 2. Paul writes to Timothy, Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great, great, great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be glory and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. We're going to think about contentment from this passage. We're not going to get into all the details of these verses, but 
what I want to do is I think we can draw out some good questions that for us to ask in the midst of our culture. Uh, and, and even as we, as we approach the Christmas season, this is a, a strange time. Well, how do we deal with all of the things that are going on this season? Um, I've been wrestling with that for a while now. And so I, hopefully these are, these, you could consider these cautions, but I want them to be questions to ask specifically in the midst of a, of a consumeristic culture. And so the first one I want us to ask is, what am I pursuing, righteousness or riches? What, what am I pursuing, righteousness or riches? So again, this, this text, one of the major issues is that there are those in their positions of authority in the church who are using those positions as a means of making money. They saw godliness as a means of gain, financial gain. Sounds like something that people dealt with back then, not now, right? Of course not. In our day, we see, we hear pastors in town or on TV preaching a prosperity gospel, right? A gospel that, that says financial blessings are the ultimate sign of God's favor. And so we see them purchase big cars and houses. Some guy recently was raising money for a plane, um, and, and who knows what else. And they do it on the backs of people who are told to sow their seed, right? Sow your seed and you'll be blessed with financial gain as well. That's not the gospel. And this passage speaks directly against that heresy. Don't believe it. The, the call to enjoyment, though, here's, here's the tension, though. So I'm telling you to enjoy all of God's good gifts. Couldn't that be misunderstood as some sort of pursuit of happiness by getting more stuff, right? If God's good gifts bring me joy, then more of God's good gifts will bring me more joy. Doesn't that make sense? If God's given everything to be enjoyed, then he needs to give me more things to enjoy. But Paul is clear that we're not to pursue riches, but we're rather to pursue righteousness and godliness. And if we love money, it will in fact hinder our pursuit of Christ-likeness, and it will hinder our joy. He says in verse 9 that simply wanting to be rich, those who desire to be rich, if you just want to be rich, it leads into terrible things. Just wanting to live at ease. Don't, we want that, though. Don't, it's so hard. That's in our hearts. I want to have money, and I want to, to live at ease. But that desire for great wealth can lead to terrible things. It's not that money is wrong, is it? Is money the root of all evil? No. What's the root of all evil? The love of money is the root of all evil. When we love money, that's when we fall into pits and get in trouble. You don't have to have money to love money, do you? Someone could be ten times as rich as you, and you might love money more than they do. I've read this quote before, but Tony Evans says, Many a man or woman will say, I don't love money. Okay, say you don't love it, but you date it, fantasize about it, romance it, and lose sleep over it. I don't know, sounds a lot like love to me. <laughs> so the issue is idolatry again, isn't it? It's, it's worshiping the gift above the giver, of trusting in that gift above the giver. And the end result could be, it says here that, that people have wandered away from the faith. Remember Demas, in love with this present world, forsook Paul, forsook the faith. Remember those seeds, they're choked out by the cares and the pleasures of this world. And that's the threat of the love of money, that it can actually not just choke our joy, but it'll choke our eternal life out of us. It will show that we love something more than Christ. But Paul tells Timothy not to pursue 
riches, but to sue righteousness. Tells him there in, in verse 11, as for you, O man of God, flee these things, run away from this love of money, and instead pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. These are the things that we're supposed to pursue. And in pursuing them, we're fighting the good fight of faith, the fight to love God and to love Christ more than the things of this world. And it's a fight. I mean, it is a fight to love Jesus. It's the fight that Jesus wages in front of Pontius Pilate. Do you remember what he says in the good confession? Pilate says, why don't you do something about the situation that you're in? And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. That's part of, of Jesus's good of the good confession that he makes. My kingdom is not of this world. This fight, it looks to another day. It looks to the day that's described in verses 14 through 16 when when Christ appears and everything is purified by fire, when we will stand before, verse 15, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. And in light of that day and in light of, of who God is, we should be much more concerned about seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness and not worry about the stuff of earth that we're told we need to have to find joy. We can enjoy God's good gifts for his glory. But we need to ask ourselves, we need to pause in the midst of a culture that says you need these things. We need to pause and say, am I pursuing riches? Am I pers- do I love money? Or am I pursuing righteousness and godliness? Is our enjoyment of things something that drives us to God and to godliness or do, the, do those things themselves become our gods that we worship? In contrast to the false teachers, not only are we to, to flee worldly riches but, and pursue righteousness, but he adds this, this he says they were, back, back in verse, um, verse 5, they thought godliness was a means of gain, but then Paul says in verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. So here's our second question. What is my perspective? Contentment or covetousness? So what am I pursuing? Riches or righteousness? What is my perspective? Contentment or covetousness? Many of us struggled with perspective on Thursday, right? Do I do I need a third helping? Should I have another piece of pie or not? Am I content right now? <laughs> And all of the food was before us, clouding our judgment. We couldn't think clearly. We could not see correctly. And so, too, in our culture, we are, we are flooded with, with commercials and, and advertisements and pop-up ads on our computers and cookies on our Facebook. You know what cookies are, right? You know, you click on something, and then somehow it ends up on that sidebar. I was looking at it. How did Facebook know I was looking at that? Because people are smart, and they know what you want. And so we walk through stores and... Our appetite for things is sparked. We're always, you know, you're not supposed to go to the grocery store hungry, right? Because you're going to buy something you don't need. But we're always hungry for things. So when we go to stores, we, oh, I think I need that. But instead of a constant desire 
for more? Do we have the right perspective on what we do have? That's what Paul's talking about here. He, he says he says we should be content. Then he says, um, he gives this phrase, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. It's, it's, it's Job, isn't it? Naked I came into this world, and naked I will go. And so I want to give us two thoughts. The, the first is, um, if he's saying that we brought nothing into this world and we will take nothing out, so first, all we have is a gift of God's grace. Everything you have is a gift of God's grace. If I came into the world with nothing, and I will leave with the same amount, then everything I have has been given. This, this knowledge of that, remembering that, is the great secret to gratitude and to thanksgiving. And it's only for those who know God as Father, as, as the giver of all good gifts. We're the only ones that can be truly thankful. G.K. Chesterton has written, The worst moment for an atheist is when he feels a profound sense of gratitude and has no one to thank. I love that. How sad, though, that we who know God fail to live lives that are filled with contented thanksgiving. We fail to see that everything that we have has been given by God. Instead, we're, we're, we're massively aware of all of the things that we don't have and that we want. Again, 1 Timothy 4.4, 4, how are God's good gifts sanctified? By thanksgiving, by, by gratitude. Gratitude is a powerful thing. It not only sanctifies God, God's good gifts, but here it, it makes us satisfied with less. We are content because we're filled with gratitude for what we do have. Thomas Merton was a Trappist monk who lived at the Abbey of Gethsemane, which is actually just south of here. You could go check it out. He wrote this. To be grateful is to recognize the love of God in everything he has given us. And he has given us everything. Every breath we draw is a gift of his love. Every moment of existence is a grace, for it brings with it immense graces from him. Gratitude, therefore, takes nothing for granted, is never unresponsive, is constantly awaking to new wonder and to praise of the goodness of God. For the grateful person knows that God is good, not by hearsay, but by experience. That is what makes all the difference. He's given us everything. He's given us breath. But that's not all that he has given. All that we have is a gift of God's grace. And then Paul points specifically to food and clothing. And so the second thing I think that Paul wants us to say is food and clothing are enough. Isn't that interesting? Verse 8, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. He doesn't even mention shelter. You know, Isn't that one we throw in there usually as a necessity? Ah, food and clothing, that's good. In other words, it's the basic gifts of this life. There are enough they speak enough to God's goodness that we should feel truly rich for having them. They're given by God for our good. And if we receive them with thanksgiving and prayer, when we, when we bow our heads before we eat a meal and we are filled with thanks and gratitude for what God has given us, that's, that's not a throwaway act in your life. That's a moment where you say, I would have nothing apart from God. And he has given me this and this is enough. Even when you think back to that command in 1 Timothy 4.4, 4, to, to receive everything and reject nothing, what was it that was being rejected? It was marriage and certain foods that were being prohibited. This was not luxury items, okay? So we need to remember that. They were forbidding marriage and certain foods. 
These simple things are, are good gifts and can be enjoyed. We can enjoy things that, that cost more money, yes, certainly. Even more expensive food or more expensive clothes. But food to eat, family to eat it with, these are great blessings, things that we should be content with. We need to pray the prayer of Proverbs 30, verses 7 to 9. I call this the prayer of the middle class. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. God, don't give me too much. Don't give me too little. I don't want to sin by forgetting you. I don't want to sin by stealing just so I can survive. Paul's helpful in Philippians 4, that passage Joel read, isn't he? He says that no matter how much or how little he had, he had learned to be content. Let me read that again. He's talking about a financial gift that the Philippians were going to give to him. And he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity, opportunity to give to support Paul's ministry. Not that I am speaking of being in need, he says, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can be content in any circumstance that God put God put God puts me in. Contentment, though, it kind of can sound sort of ho hum, you know, like, well, I'm just sort of content. But remember, God's not calling us to misery. He's calling us to to true joy. The false teachers thought that true joy was in worldly wealth of some kind. But Paul says that godliness joined with contentment is great gain. Financial gain alone is nothing compared to pursuing godliness with a heart that is filled with grateful contentment. And Paul says that he has learned that. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. It's not going to happen through one message this morning. This is a process of our lives that we need to learn. And we learn it in some ways when we don't have anything or when we deny ourselves of certain things. How do we, how do we learn this? We learn it by being grateful for the things that we have, to have a right perspective that, that, that God, I, everything I have is from God, and if I have food and clothing, that's enough. If we keep that mentality, we slowly learn contentment. To remind ourselves of these things. We have to cultivate hearts that are full of thanks. When we pause and we see how needy we are, and we see how good God has been just in these gifts, then we are overcome with wonder that God would send his son to ungrateful people covetous people like you and me. Why would he do that? We need to give him thanks for the rain that he gives us, for the food that he provides for us, for the breath in our lungs. We didn't thank them for that. In our sinfulness, we rebel against that. And yet he has sent Christ to be our Savior. And suddenly we become joyfully content. And we can even grow like I think Paul is talking in Philippians 4. We could grow to the place where we would say, God could take away everything, including food including clothing. If I have Christ, that'd be enough. I know Jesus is my Savior. I can be content with that.
So what am I pursuing? Righteousness or riches? What is my perspective? Covetousness or contentment? And tied to that perspective is just this final question. This is brief. Where am I putting my hope? Where am I putting my hope? The uncertainty of riches or the certainty of God's truth? We see that here at the end when he gives instruction to the rich, beginning in verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. For hoping in anything but Christ for eternal life, then our hope is uncertain. But faith in the finished work of Jesus is a sure foundation. Money will not save you in the end. Good works will not save you. Your family, your friends, your attendance at church, none of that will make you right with God. But repenting, turning from sin, trusting in Christ will. Our sins deserve eternal punishment. But Jesus took our sin. He took our punishment through his death on the cross. And now he calls us to trust in the work of Christ on our behalf and to receive the gift of new life that's made possible through his resurrection. If that's where our hope is, if our hope is in God for our salvation, then Paul tells us how we live if we have money. He gives instructions to the rich in this present age, verse 17. And that's you. And that's me. We live in America. We are rich for the most part. There are exceptions to that. But for the most part, we are blessed in unique ways. Compared to most of the world, we as Americans are rich in worldly goods. So listen to this instruction. As for the rich, me, you, charge them not to be haughty. Don't be prideful. That stems back to that idea, everything you have is from God. Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Don't trust in these things, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. I love that. Another phrase, he gives us everything to enjoy. And what are we to do? They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. He says that if we who have worldly goods, if we are truly trusting in God, then we will be filled with generosity understand these things then we will be ready to do good works and to give things away our focus should not be on finding ways to get but on finding ways to give to those who are in need you know the way you know that something truly doesn't hold your heart it's when you give it away it's when you let go of it jesus is right isn't he more blessed to give than to receive And it shows that our hope is not in this life, but when we take our goods and we give them to others generously. What's he saying? We are storing up treasure, great gain for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. If we are truly God's children, that's what we'll do. Because who's the greatest giver in the world? Jesus. God himself gives us his son. That's what we think about. Why do we give gifts at Christmas? Because God has given us his son. He's given us himself. Let me ask some questions. 
So sort of related. Am I pursuing righteousness and godliness, or am I pursuing riches, exalting gifts above the true gift? Am I content with what I have, or have I allowed the culture around me to fill me with love for money and a heart that covets things? Am I aware, are we aware of the way that love for money and desire for worldly possessions is pushed on us by our culture? Have we made our children aware of that? Do they see that, that we want? It's that old Bernstein Bears book, the Bernstein Bears Get the Gimmies. You ever read that one? We all get that, gimmies. Do we see that that's pushed on us in so many ways? Do I see generosity as the best and the most eternally rewarding investing of, investment of my money? Or am I just invested in myself and getting more for me? This is a, a call to enjoyment. When we think about the stuff of earth, we, can, we are called to enjoy it for the glory of God. Everything is good and nothing is to be rejected if we receive it with thanksgiving. There are cautions and there are tensions that we have to deal with. And I think when we put all of that together, in the middle of sorts is this place of contentment. We can enjoy good things for God's glory and we can be content when we have none of it. We can enjoy good things and we can give them up for God's greater glory. We can enjoy something and then we can give it up for the good of someone else or to push them closer to Christ. We know how to grieve and we know how to weep and we also know how to rejoice. As we draw this message and sort of this series to a close, it's the first Sunday of Advent. And so I just want to give you four simple thoughts as we move into the Christmas season. Okay. Because if there's any ever a time that's filled with commercialism and advertisements, man, my parents got a paper about that big, I think, on Thursday. Um, we could be caught up in the commercialism. We could get caught up in that. Or we could just become sour people like Charlie Brown, remember? Charlie Brown sees all the commercialism and he gets so angry. Doesn't anybody know what Christmas is really all about? <laughs> Where do we find the middle? Let me give you four thoughts that I came up with and I encourage you to keep the discussion going. The first one is this. Enjoy God's good gifts. In the Christmas season, enjoy God's good gifts. And start with food. Food and, and clothing. These are things that God has given to us to enjoy. Enjoy them. Don't worship them. Enjoy them for God's glory. Friends and family that we've been blessed with, enjoy those to God's glory. Creation and creativity. This is a time where we celebrate. This, it's a beautiful time of year. We're with Hopefully we'll get some snow. I don't know. It's been so warm. But the, the beauty of what God has made, or, or, or even just a, a fire or or the beauty that people create this time of year. I think there's something about us, if we do it rightly, we can reflect God who is creative in the way that we create, in the way you might build a gingerbread house or decorate a tree or put lights on your house, that that reflects the beauty of God and the creative way that he has made us in his image. We can do that to the glory of God. Unless it bothers your conscience, then don't do it. But, and we can give and receive presents with hearts that are filled with joy. We can do that. You don't have to reject it completely. I've struggled with that. I don't know. I'm trying to find the right balance. But we can do that with joy. I can remember as a kid, one of my favorite times of the Christmas season was the Saturday after Thanksgiving when my family, we all got drugged to the Medina Craft Show, and it was miserable. But I think I really liked it deep down for some reason. We'd walk around, and my parents were 
looking at arts and crafts things, and it felt like the whole day we were there. We were probably there for a half an hour or something. I don't know. And then afterwards, we'd go out to Bob Evans with my grandparents. And then after that, we would drive to Summit Mall and walk around, and they'd have the trees all around. That was the first place I had Starbucks was at Summit Mall. First place. Uh, and, and I can remember that, and I loved that time. It was such a great time. And they, we'd be at this craft show, and someone would walk by and say, oh, I really like that. And then my, you know, everyone would be going behind their back trying to buy it for them. And, and there was just sort of this whole atmosphere. And I loved it, and it was beautiful. And we can, get, we can do that in a way that blesses others, in a way that is honoring to God, filled with kindness and love and generosity to our friends and family. And then we can go overboard. We've got to be careful on that. But we can give gifts, we can receive gifts with hearts that are filled with joy. So enjoy God's good gifts. Second, take time to be thankful. Take time to be thankful. It doesn't stop just because Thanksgiving is over. We haven't moved beyond thankfulness into now we're just going to get things. But we should be thankful for the stuff of earth, especially the simple things, especially food and clothing, and especially for the gift of Jesus. Isn't that what we're celebrating? If he was all that we had, it would be enough. All that we had was Christ. It would be enough. So enjoy God's good gifts. Take time to be thankful. Pursue righteousness. Pursue righteousness. This is a time where we can, we can focus on who Christ is, where we can lead our families and lead others to know more of who God is. People are, are filled with wonder at this time of year. We can pause and remember who Christ is. And then... Fourth, intentionally give to those in need. Not just give to those in need, but intentionally. Involve your family somehow in this, that it's not just about getting, but it's about giving, and especially give to those who might lack food and clothing. Doesn't that make sense out of this passage? If we have food and clothing, with that we will be content. What about people that don't have food? Shouldn't we pause and think, how can we help? those in need. What a great way it was to kick off the holiday season last Sunday night by making a bunch of food for other people and blessing them. I love that. It, it was so beautiful to see this church come together and serve and not jump first in line, but make sure that everyone else had something to eat and, and to give what you had. That's beautiful. Let's keep it going. Involve your kids in this. There's so many wonderful, unique ways to give at this time of year. Don't just do it and not out of out just sort of out of habit or without involving your mind and your heart and praying for those that you're giving to. Have you seen? There's so many. You know, Samaritan's Purse has a whole catalog that you can buy. You could buy a sheep for someone and give it to them. You can you can buy so many unique things to bless others. You can dig a well. You can do so many unique things. Um, and so I encourage you to intentionally give to those who are in need. Doesn't that really get at the at the heart of what Christmas is? That Jesus comes at grace, great cost to himself, comes to earth to live and to die and to rise again for helpless sinners like us. And so if we have been given so much, we are freed to give. So let's keep the conversation going. We live in this world. It's filled with stuff. We've got to figure out how to, how to live here. And so I call you to enjoy it all for the glory of God.
recognize the cautions and the tensions that are there and find a place of contentment to the place where if everything was taken away and all you knew was salvation in Christ, you would say, I've got everything I need in him. Let's take a moment of silence to pause and and reflect on God's word and then I will close this in prayer. Father, we we give thanks to you this morning as the giver of all good gifts. Everything that we have is from you. So we we give thanks to you, God. Jesus, thank you for coming to this earth to live and to die and to rise again, to give us new life. And Holy Spirit, please come and help us now. Push us and, and prod us in the ways that we need to be pushed and prodded. Teach us contentment, Lord. We need to learn this. By your Spirit, do that. Through your Word, do that. Teach us to be content. Teach us to be generous. Lord, may you be glorified in all that we say and do, whether we're eating or drinking or whatever we're doing. May you receive glory and praise through it. I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.